So how, on God's gray earth, did this? He stands like a statue because part of the machine. Being all the bumpers, always plays clean. Plays by intuition. And this. Just talking about my generation. and Outliers, the podcast where we take a closer look at that one album that sticks out like a sore thumb in the artist's discography. Might be their best album, it might be their worst album, but either way, it's that one album where the artist was so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. This week on the panel, we have... Logan Reynard, Matthew Marr, and in fact, we have a special guest this uh, week, the baddest baritone guitarist from Denver, Mr. Casey Elkinton. Say hello to everyone. Hello, everyone. Pleased to be here. So uh, this week we um, will be discussing what is probably Keith Moon's best solo album. You're here. Without a doubt. Two Sides of the Moon from uh, 1975. It is a blissful 29 minutes long. Um, so... Why did Keith Moon record a solo album? <laughs> did he want to? Was he forced to? What was the thought process here? Did he just have a stack of money he was sitting on that he had nothing to do with? That certainly seems like a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. is this a tax shelter <laughs> album? We, we haven't seen one of those in a while. Those are, those are nice. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely part of that 1970s L.A. vibe when, like, John Lennon and Harry Nilsson and Alice Cooper and... Like Mickey Dolan's and this, yeah, this album was, it's the, it's the Hollywood vampires karaoke album. (laughs) Pretty much. Yes. He was, um, uh, I think he was the only member of the who that had not yet released a song. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Townsend had put out a couple of those, um, tribute to Marishi Alibaba or whatever. Marbaba. Yeah. Yeah. he, He put out one solo album in 72, I think. And Endwhistle put out like four by the time Moon put out his one and only record. So was he just, you know, he felt left out? Maybe that was part of it. Or Everybody else is having fun. Why, why ain't Keith? Yeah, exactly. You know, everyone loves Keith singing. I mean, 
that's why you know people love Tommy is just for fiddle about. Really, <laughs> the the whole album could have just been fiddle about, and, you know. <laughs> and you know, a quick one. Everyone, everyone's favorite song on there is definitely Cobwebs and Strange. So they're really <laughs> hoping for a whole album of that, but he didn't even write the songs on this album. I think he gets like one co-writing credit on what's more of a jam than a write, but uh, he sings on this album. That's his primary duty. Yeah, that's. I mean, he only plays drums on a few tracks, and as a vocalist, Keith Moon is an excellent drummer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just because you're good at one part of music doesn't mean you're good at another. Yeah, I don't, I don't think he's, um, well, we will listen and we will decide, but uh, I don't think his singing is atrocious. No, that's not the worst thing about this album. No, no. No, but, you know, just because you're a good drummer doesn't mean you're a good singer. It's like, you know, hiring the Beatles' roadie to produce your album. I mean, who would do that? This album was uh, co-produced by Mal Evans, the Beatles' roadie. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently those mixes were so bad that people had to come in and refix it. But he was the original producer and just ran into Keith Moon at like the airport or something like, I'll produce your album. Yeah, I did read a, a comment from Joe Walsh, who plays you know, a bit on this album. There's a lot of people and on he, this album. Uh, does he Joe remember he, what he played on this album? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, that's... Um, uh, well, what he did say he remembered was, is they, they, uh, you know, I guess there were, did you just, I'm sorry, I yeah. lost my train of thought that, um, uh, there were two producers. There were a number of producers. A number by of the producers. End. Yes. Yeah. He was, he was saying he was, uh, he was shocked. There weren't, you know, hundreds of producers because none of them could last more than a. Yeah, no, it was originally produced by like <laughs> Mal Evans and then, you know, the uh, record company who actually spent a surprising amount of money on this, um, much like the DD Ramon album. Not sure what they were thinking, but uh, yes. $200,000, I believe. Yes, they, they, they fired, said Mal Evans, and I think like Steve Cropper came in and did the final version, but I think a couple well, others. Half of a bachelor's degree these days. Yeah. So student loans add up, and um, yeah, I, he started a second solo album shortly thereafter that never got finished for... Sad reasons. Well... Yeah. I, I think it, he gave up on that before, you know, things got sad. I think it was mostly this didn't make any money. I mean, we should address what kind of behavior this gang was, uh, especially Mooney. But I mean, pretty much everybody on this album is like cocaine and booze fueled maniac at the time. And is, you know, this is a this is a motley crew of. Uh, yeah. Of booze hounds. It seems like heavy, <laughs> heavy partying. Yeah. yeah How like, much of the budget went towards drugs and alcohol alone? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah well, in 1975, the, that was something you had to budget in, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, that was the part of an AR man's job is, yeah. One of the, uh, uh, one of the producers did comment that, um, I can't remember which one, did, did comment that it was very frustrating because they'd come in, everyone would show up late. And then they'd get everything, you know, everything going, and then they get about two hours of work done, and then, and then, um, time for um, a break. It, well, and then they would still be in the studio, but nothing would be getting done for, you know, um, <laughs> hours upon hours. And, you know, he said he, he would just leave after a while and, yeah, you know, try again. Yeah. The next day. Well, we want to, you know, I want to give Moon a bunch of credit for just being an unparalleled, you know, drug, drugged out madman, but, 
everything I've I've read about recordings at this time, I mean, he had a lot of company, and this yeah. is pretty much how a yeah. lot of records were made. <laughs> yeah, particularly <laughs> then, like, oh, right. Well, and as Scott mentioned, you know, at the same time or around the same time, John Lennon's there in in. Um, uh, L.A. Yeah, you know, and he had you know very infamously you know his lost weekend, lost several months where he was just um, you know chronically drunk and um, in the studio and that sort of thing. And um, um, you know, Moon was was um, um, hanging out with with um, him and Harry Nilsson. Yeah, and uh, you know a bunch of other other um, cats that love to um, you know or, or um, were in the the throes of the most intense partying scene that they probably ever been in there's a fantastic venture brothers reference to the the scary nielsen and uh yeah who's <laughs> yes. a werewolf i believe and some other people uh in the lost uh, weekend episode yeah now phil specter was producing john lennon john lennon was producing harry nielsen i think ringo was just there passed out on the couch yeah ringo ringo was there ringo was big uh, big buddies with with uh, Keith Moon. Well, and that's and, uh, a good point of comparison because Ringo and Keith probably have about the same level of vocal ability, a certain charm, a certain, <coughs> you know, <laughs> well-meaningness. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, Keith's a lot scarier. There's a reason why Ringo's version of Fiddle About is not as well-known. Which, you know, if you haven't heard, definitely check out Ringo playing the part of Uncle Ernie. It is um, <laughs> not very sober. No, no, not very sober applies to a lot of this record. Uh, a lot of slurring going on. Yeah. But um, but I, I will say this, that, that I am, um, um, uh, you know, as we get into it, you know, clearly some tracks are better than others. But but um, I, you know, I did listen to this. We're talking a long, long time ago. I believe I was still in high school. And because uh, I remember quite, I wasn't sure that I had, but I, then when I saw the album cover again, I definitely, I remember my friend having this album. And I remember putting it on being kind of excited because I thought it was just going to be the most crazy stuff I've ever heard. And it ends up being, you know, very kind of, you know, 50s, 60s, nostalgia kind of rock. Um, very yeah. kind of straightforward, not a whole lot of twists or turns. And uh, where's the where's the maniac drummer? Um, yeah, would a twenty nine minute drum solo have been better received <laughs> and probably sold better too? Most definitely. Yeah, if anyone could have pulled it off. But but listening in it with with my old man ears now, um, it's not nearly as bad as I remembered it. Or you know, I, I don't find it nearly as as. I'm, I'm not going to listen to it. Probably ever again, but at the same time, it, it's not. Um, uh, you know, it's it's okay. Yeah, it's not the shags. It's not right. metal machine music. It's not going to yeah, hurt you. But yeah, it's just a, a rich drunk guy having fun with his friends. And yeah, that I mean, it just sounds like a bunch of people having a lot of fun making a, a, a goofy album and just doing a heroic amount of of drugs. And I mean. That's awesome. <laughs> Good for them. More they, fun to they did, so you don't have to. Yeah, you know? I don't. I, it's just a, well, it's amazing. You know, I, I was about to say something really stupid. It's like, well, how did they survive this? Well, obviously, some people didn't. Were, I got some bad news for you, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, a lot of them didn't make it, and and uh, it is it is a uh, um, uh, you know, but they're they're um, 
they're burning the candles at both ends, right? Yeah. yeah. No. But even even guys that I didn't realize that were uh, you know guys that were on the on the album like uh, who's it Klaus Vermin Klaus Vermin yeah Vermin yeah you know the bass player you know kind of uh, legendary with his work with X Beatles and and other things um, he uh, you know he apparently was um, all gung ho too yeah no yeah. I, I think like Flo and Eddie from the Turtles right and right later Frank Zappa which is an odd combination but yes they're Doing some of the background. Oh, I think they've already they already did their Frank Zappa stuff. I yeah, think. I know this is post Zappa, and that might have been. Um, uh, oh, actually, that's how. Uh, that's an interesting story right there. Apparently, that's how how they met. Was Keith Moon um, was briefly you know has a cameo on Frank Zappa's Two Hundred Motels, in also which starring uh, Ringo Starr and, and Flo and Eddie, right? Yes. And uh, so they uh, so they you know they they um, became chummy. Yes, with, with Moon there, and that's why apparently Moon invited them to. Um, yeah, Frank Frank was not partying. No. Yeah, but he was around a lot of people who were at this time. So I, I think Frank thought of himself as kind of an anthropologist, and so he just liked <laughs> to observe people's humans. You know, he was yeah, he was Jane Goodall amongst the chips at <laughs> right. this point. He's like, oh really? <laughs> so what was the thought behind this album? Was it look, I can sing, I want to sing, or? Was it, he didn't write the song, so it wasn't like, here, listen to my great songs. Um, I don't think the, the public, you know, who had been around like in 12, 15 years at this point was really demanding a solo album from Keith at this point. And why did he choose these songs? Because it's a lot of, it's not all 50s covers, but they all feel mm. like 50s covers. There's a couple of, Newly penned songs that are pretty three chord, twelve bar, I doopy. Yeah, I could see Moon just being like, "Hey, everybody else in the band has one. I want one." Yeah, something to do. <laughs> He's young, you know. I, I I think if if my band was doing that, I'd probably jump on board and make a solo record too. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I I just read the the recent Entwistle, well, just a year ago or whatever the the John Entwistle uh, biography, the authorized one, um, and uh, yeah, it sounds like uh, they did they treated recording albums about like this, yeah, where they just it was a party with occasional champagne music. and and blow and snacks and. And apparently Brandy Alexander Scoo- screwed really around popular. in the studio, uh, you know, for a month. <laughs> it's, it's just a thousand dollars an hour so they could. Well, the music industry still like that, right? Drink and party. Record companies yeah. making billions and able to spend it all on blow and. Brandy oh, yeah. I, I think this one got away from the record company. You know, no, the, they, the, uh, they they signed it off and then realized the mistake. And, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, yeah, and it, it you know, it ended up costing way more money than than I think anyone intended to. But but I you know, I think that's part of the the you know part of the uh, part of that whole milieu, right? Was that you know this like um, hey, this isn't our dime. Somebody else is paying for it. We're going to have as much uh, funny fun as we possibly can, right? True. And you know, and of course, the record companies always get their money back. But if you um, you know, if you just keep going, right? Yeah. Then then there's no reason for the party to ever stop. Well, with all that said, should we like dive into the actual quote unquote music of this <laughs> album? 
because I think it opens with a, a song called Crazy Like a Fox, written by Spencer Davies, or Davis, I, I don't know. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Hello. one of four tracks that Keith Moon actually played drums on. Did you know that Keith Moon can play the drums? <laughs> and he, I think there may be only three. <laughs> that may be true. Well, and it, apparently even the ones he does play on, he's not the only one playing on. He, he's just the one adding the fills and someone else is doing like, the rhythm part, which, you know, you don't see a lot of like lead and rhythm drummers in bands, but if anyone could be a lead drummer, it'd be Keith. An interesting... Bit about this is uh, it was written by ex spirit bassist and um, then current entertainment lawyer Al Stahey. Ah, so, not as I said, Spencer Davis, he played the guitar, but yes, it's uh, shall we say, very Bowie like a couple years too late, a couple years too late, but yes, it was definitely very David Bowie y. I mean, he doesn't sing bad. I mean, well, he sang some in The Who. Not, I mean, he was the fourth best vocalist, but it's still pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Well, not so, like, hunky-dory spiders from Mars, Bowie. Like, Bowie yeah. kind of burns shit down and moved on yeah, he through was eras, so. Kind of like pinups, actually, when wait, Bowie wait. did all those covers. Wasn't, <laughs> wasn't Bowie in town during all of this, too? Oh, yeah. He, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, this is the, when he did Station to Station and couldn't remember that he did Station to Station. Right, right. And they wrote that song. He wrote that song with John Lennon. Oh, fame. fame right. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, so so perhaps there's a connection there. Yeah. So he probably was hanging out. He's like, I don't, I don't need this style anymore. You want it, Moon? And, yeah. Cool. <laughs> In the process of recording this song, how, how many backing vocalists did they need before his vocal was tolerable? Yeah, there's a lot of echo that you you can see that while I personally don't mind his vocals, whoever was mixing and recording this album did not care for Keith's vocals because yeah. they are buried in the mix mm-hmm. in almost every song, slathered in echo. There's one where he attempts to double track his vocals that are just valiantly heroic, shall we say. <laughs> but um, is um, um, Did Phil Spector have anything to do with this? No, I think he had driven off with a... John Lennon's rock and roll tapes at this point, and it was pretending to have gotten into a car accident in Mexico or something. So yes, but he his spirit lives on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there were still bullets from Phil Spector's gun in the roof of the uh, studio while Keith was recording. Shall we move on then? Yeah. Next track is "Solid Gold" by Nikki Barclay. For my contribution. It's solid gold. These backing vocals remind me of Schoolhouse Rock. And now I've topped the charts. 
bless your heart. So he doesn't try to sing here. He just talks his way through it um, with a very British. You know, if Eric Idle were attempting to put out an album, it might sound like this. Oh, yeah. Well, and this this is a newer song, too. This is something that fascinates me about this whole thing. And I think this album has a lot of reasons to be fascinated about. Yes. Um, and, and this is one is that, that this was written by one of the members of the all-girl rock band Fanny, which was the uh, probably the first all-female rock band to, to gain any notoriety. And uh, it was clearly very influential on the, you know, the, um, um, the, the female runaways acts that would come, and, right? Yeah. The Runaways especially, right? That sort of thing. And so, um, uh, um, you know, and it's like the England, fact England, Fanny right. something else. Yeah. <laughs> Fanny Pack. Americans. Yeah, and the, yeah. the, the fact that, that he, he, like, called upon them. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm, I'm just curious, what is the connection there? Like, just like, he, he was out one night and saw Fanny and was like, hey, come, you gotta come to the studio, you got yeah. any songs? You know, yeah. like, um... Well, and but, it sounds like a cheesy 50s song, so... I think Susie Quattro's sister was in the band, P- Patty yeah. Quattro. Yes, and yeah, yeah. So apparently Quattro is a, their real name and not a stage name, which I found fascinating. Susie Quattro is a great bass player. I'm not denying that, but, you know... Quattro is still a weird last name. Yeah. He's a, a backing vocalist on this as well, right? Patty? Patty, yes. The backing vocals that, you know. Wow. Yeah, so all, all these people just met partying, or, right? It yeah, sure they probably all just like... woke up from an all-nighter and found themselves in a studio with Keith Moon and like, I got to record somebody's album. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is... Where am I? How did I get here? Yeah. Yes. Hit record. These... Do what? Yeah, these people all woke up on the floor of some house in L.A. one morning and decided to make this album. Well, some of them, but, you know, like the backing vocalists are, are tight and, and, and clearly are, sober. So those are the hired they were Yeah, they were layered on afterwards. I imagine mm-hmm. the unoverdubbed version of this is far more of a I, train wreck. You know, Neil Young's, what is it, Tonight's the Night? I, I yeah. really want the I want to hear the version of this that's that where it just gets it starts pretty loose and falls apart from there. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. No, they definitely tried to put a a seventies sheen over this. I mean, apparently, like they hired everyone to come in after the record was done to try and clean it up. Like, there's talk that Brian Wilson. I mean. If you're hiring 1970s Brian Wilson to make you sound better, mm. you're you're in trouble. But you know, there's l- stuff in the later 70s. You know, there's like some like John Cale stuff that's like this. It's like deliberately, you know, loose rock and roll stuff. It's more arty, but this doesn't sound. I don't. I mean, maybe at the time it just sounded lazy, <laughs> but. It, they, For seventy five, it had there was a sound in seventy five where people seemed to feel they needed huge string arrangements and yeah. excessive backing vocals and excessive instrumentation, and in, in this case, it seems like they're almost trying to distract you from Keith's vocals. Hey, look over this there! It's like, hey, there's a piano <laughs> over here, and now there's a saxophone over here, and a big swelling string section. Oh, and a singer. Yeah, well, and it's a lot easier to hide in the budget. You know the mountains of coke when you're spending. You know, I was gonna say you can justify bigger budgets too. Yeah, yeah. If you've got yeah the 
London Philharmonic and the Mormon Tabernacle Choir layered on top. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I'm, I'm also thinking of like the early solo Lou Reed stuff, which is very, very produced, but you know, they can't bury Lou singing really out of key. And but and the, the funny thing is, you listen to those songs with him with a really stripped down rock band just hacking at the two or three chords and you know, talking along to his song, and they stand on their own, like a lot of that. A lot of the, the horn section crap and 20 backup singers did not need to be... Like, if the songs are good, but, I, yeah, I guess in the middle of the 70s, that was just compulsory. It's it's, it's on, like it's synthesizers on in the yeah. 80s or <laughs> oh, record scratching. Was, um, the... Like Phantom of the Paradise and Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. And Meatloaf, his style of uh, yeah. production had yeah. a lot of this same 70s... There's some incredible meatloafy moments coming up on this album. <laughs> meatloafy moments. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a band name. This, um, this song seems kind of tongue in cheek to me. As I well. assume it's <clears throat> it's a joke, but again, I somebody needs to do a real deep dive into why the seventies were so obsessed with the fifties. Cause yeah. there was like my entire perception of the 50s comes from, you know, Shanana and Happy Days and American Graffiti. And Greece. And, yeah, Greece and other stuff <laughs> oh, that yeah. did not actually happen in the 50s. There was a bu- there's a bunch of, you know, 50s, early 60s songs that I, I thought were Ramon songs. I mean, until I heard the original. Yeah. You know, I didn't realize how they just grabbed them. Yeah, and I don't uh, know what it was about the 50s that so fascinated the 70s, but... It was not a minor thing. I mean, it wasn't like the 80s was obsessed with the 60s or we're obsessed with the 90s now. But. Although, you know, you're, you're right. Although there is, was a little bit of that. Remember there was a huge Doors revival in the early 80s? Yeah, that was mostly like the, the, the Val Kilmer movie. Right, right. The, There's yeah, usually I thought that was Kids in the Hall. Yeah, right. It was done by, it was a, yeah, spurred on by Hollywood, right? But yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, I think it's it's interesting. Uh, Joe Walsh, I can't really discern it on this one, but yeah. he's playing the ARP yeah. guitar synthesizer, which would have been one of the earliest forms of, of is it uh, of, or is uh, it guitar? So maybe play guitar. And I think he played guitar and synthesizer. I don't think there was. Oh, you could be correct. You could be correct. I think the earliest of that would have been a couple of years. Later I don't know. My my brother been. in the the late the late seventies, mid late seventies, he had a mini Moog. Yeah, and he was able to to uh, play his guitar. Uh, it didn't track very yeah, well, but yeah. it, but it did work. Yeah, I mean, you were just playing. Th- well, you had to play single note lines. There was a little bit of a delay, and there was lots of glitches. Hmm. But you know, you could still. Yeah, the first functional stuff I want to say would be. Like 77, 78, like something. But, you know, there's there's also, um, you know, we talk about first in the studio versus shit that you could haul to a gig and do live. And they're frequently five or ten years apart. You know, mm-hmm. you can, you know, if you have a team of people to set up some experimental thing and run it for you while you record two seconds of audio, then, it, you know, that you can probably figure out how to do that. But if you got to you know, drag it into a, a venue and play live. <laughs> yeah, it could have been on this. You know, who knows? Maybe um, Joe was just looking for something to do. What was the, um, was that the, um, do, 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 do. what was the band with Ant Whistle and Ringo and, and all those? 
the all-star band no there was a ringo band or yeah there was that the last or there was something there's it's a it's a the the kind of uh, band name, but there was a super group that was Joe Walsh and Jeff Baxter and Entwistle, and I want to say Ringo was in it. It was like all these guys, and it sounds like one of the Entwistle solo records, so it's like not that different from this. It's like goofy throwbacky rock and roll, <laughs> drinking lots of booze in the studio. Um, yeah, I did. Um, I think it might have been um, um, Mark Marin's interview with Joe Walsh. Yeah, and he, you know, he asked him about Keith Moon. He said, you know, do you hang out? Oh yeah, I said, yep, I hung out a lot with Keith Moon. And he's like, you have any stories? And he says, I have no stories. Mm-hmm. He says, I, there's, it's gone. And he's, he's like, yeah. And he was, and he sounded honest, like it's, it's. I'm not keep holding back. I just have. I don't remember. Yeah, don't remember. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of Entwistle, didn't Keith play on? The last Entwistle solo album, what, Smash Your Head Into The Wall or something like that? That's his first one That's from 71. Yeah. So why why isn't Entwistle on this? Why aren't any of the, the Who guys helping Keith? Do we even know what they thought of this album? Did, did Pete Good listen question. to this album? <laughs> uh, Were they polite <laughs> enough not to, you know, can't say something nice? Just, <laughs> it's just the, the elephant in the room that nobody talks about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very nice. We'll hang it on the wall. <laughs> we'll put it on the fridge with a magnet. Very good, Keith. Nicely. Oh, holy crap. Jesse Ed Davis is on this? Yeah. Wow. Well, he was hanging out with a lot of these people back then. He was he was sort of the de facto George Harrison in all these ex-Beatles solo albums from this time. But Wow. But if you want a really odd uh, musician, we should go to the next track, Uh a version, loosely, of uh, Don't Worry Baby by the Beach Boys. We have star of Twin Peaks, Miguel Ferrer. Yeah, and uh, and um, Crossing Jordan. Crossing Jordan. Yeah, he's, he's like Rosemary that, yeah. Clooney's. No, Miguel Ferrer's son is uh, Jose Ferrer, or vice versa. Jose Ferrer's Miguel Ferrer's dad. But yes, they're from an acting family, and he's been in a lot of things. Died fairly recently. You'd recognize him if you saw him. Not known for his drumming ability, unlike you know. The singer. <laughs> maybe maybe that's why uh, Keith plays a little percussion on this one. Yes. I mean, it is... It is I, my notes say the arrangement is both over-the-top and bland <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how they managed to pull it off, but yes. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of strings on this one. Oh, yeah. It's the Muzak karaoke version with... That is a good question. How do you, how do you put that much stuff on something and... Well, I think this is one of the tracks that Mel Evans actually produced, and so he didn't really know how to arrange it, so everyone's just playing chords. The chord, chord, chord. I mean, you know, the most interesting thing about it actually is Keith's somewhat um, idiosyncratic delivery. 
which does feel, you know, half like he's taking the piss out of it and half like he really wants to be one of the Beach Boys. So. I, I think there's a a, a, a a business aspect to the strings. And I, I like I think if it was L.A. produced music at this time, like those people had to work, <laughs> you know, like they had a building full of people who arranged strings and recorded strings for stuff. And it was just you know, the, the studio system in LA was just a machine yeah, there and, was, and it wasn't easy to switch off part of the machine. There's, you know, you know Canon had been canceled, so there was no TV work for these guys. So they headed over to the uh, Keith Moon, you know, yeah. <laughs> the backing singers, I think deserve hazard pay for like carrying 90% of the song. It's just, you know, Keith doing his British upper crust, joke voice the, yeah yeah <laughs> the backup singers on this probably knocked it out in one take and like did like yeah. six more sessions the same yeah, after the like before commercial lunch. right before yeah there's a one of the flow and eddie guys either uh, mark volman or howard kaylin i can't remember which one but he said that they called him back to redo his vocals and he did and he said there was no difference he didn't understand what was going on. I don't on. think anyone understood what was but, going on. But, you know, you get paid for it. So yeah, no. You, I'll, I'll show up and sing Don't Worry Baby if you give me enough money or Coke. Right, right. <laughs> but, this, um, this reminds me of uh, uh, Sid Vicious singing uh, My Way. Hmm. Yeah, but not as charming. That I think, um, or maybe less bland, that's the word. Yeah. Maybe it is more charming. But they... Um, um, uh, Keith apparently loved that style of music. He loved the Beach Boys, you know, uh, surf music in general. I don't get the impression here that he's, um, I mean, I don't get that from this. I don't get, I really love this music. No. Well, it's odd because I think of the Beach Boys and the Who as contemporaries, but I guess the Beach Boys did come out like a year before the Who really started. So just enough to be an influence, but it still feels more like, you know, Covering one of your own band songs. Not that Keith would do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, if you're going for like a an oldies, doo-wop, 50s vibe on this record, why would you cover a song from... I mean, it is kind of 50s-ish, but it's definitely not. Well, I guess the thing you got to remember is that all of the, the British folks, i.e. the Who, got into music through Skiffle, which is kind of just amped up folk music um and that there's some parallels between that and and so you should have done the sloop john b earlier rock and roll thing so i mean i can see some of this 50s rock stuff appealing to someone who really had their their mind blown by by skiffle this was the single from the album i uh I don't think there was a second one. They they should have cranked what up was the B side if this was the single. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I could look it up, but uh, it doesn't matter. They really should have cranked up Keith's vocal and just let him slur a bunch. Yeah, no. If you're gonna it, do, do a novelty, it, it would have been it would have been much better. Well, especially since it's his album. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it sounds like he was really excited about it at first until it realized it would require effort on his part, and then sort of regretted having committed to it and um they sort of dragged him through the second half of finishing the album so well i know i i assume that keith was the same way but i remember too reading a bit about entwhistle that he he just loved being on the road 
that was what he wanted to do. And a part of the reason he started doing those solo albums is because there was downtime with the who, and he didn't want to sit around. He wanted to go out on the road and, and, you know, if Keith has the same mindset, it's like, a you know, you're just kind of stuck in a studio for yeah. Pete's working on a rock opera. It'll be a couple of months. What am I going right, to do? Right. Uh, and, uh, right. And so, so maybe, maybe like you said, maybe he thought it was, this is going to be fun. And then, and then, um, and then he's like, Oh, I have to get up at like 1 PM. Like, it's like, <laughs> too much work. <laughs> now we'll go on to the next tune, which is definitely not fifties rock and roll doo-wop-y sounding. Than Joe Walsh were there other Eagles that Keith was partying with? Didn't we already do the Ween album? <laughs> we did. Actually, uh, 1970, right as the Beatles broke up, Ringo put out a country album, which we may have to cover at some point, but it sounds a lot like this. It's, again, this one was it's sort of not offensive. Uh, I did look it up. This is a Ricky Nelson song. Yeah, no, he apparently does backing vocals on it, too. He's, or at least, according to Wikipedia, he's listed as a vocalist. So this is the one with the really bad double tracking. So maybe Ricky is one of the double track vocals that uh, Keith is attempting to keep up with. But it's, um, it, you know, for an album that sticks out, this is a song that sticks out on that album. Doesn't have any antecedent uh, no, it's just sort of plopped in there. Yeah, and there's no setup, or it makes no sense. I mean, how many great country songs by The Who can you name? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, one. see? One. Now I'm a farmer. <laughs> and, it, yeah, that seems about as sincere as this one. <laughs> I mean, the lyrics are cute and funny, and, you know, it does at least acknowledge that he is from London and not you know, Nashville, Again, it kind of feels like uh, we've only got 23 minutes on this album. You gotta, you gotta do one more song. What do we got just laying in the can? Yeah, it must have. Um, that must have been a task just to sort of, um, just sort of, you know, eventually say, what are we gonna put out? What yeah. album? What song can we actually finish? And, yeah, I don't uh, think there were a lot of outtakes lying around. I mm. want to talk about that, but I'll talk about that a little bit later. Okay. Right? Yeah, because you might be surprised. Oh, goody. <laughs> well, let's just let's move on to a, another cover of a... Uh-oh. Sorry. <laughs> Who? <Ooh>. My bad. <laughs> the kids are That's why Keith Moon has a career. The highlight of the album. (laughs) 
of my questions as to why did Keith record this come from this song. Why did Keith record this? I mean, it wasn't like, oh, the Who didn't do it right, and I want to show them my arrangement. That's much better. But it's exactly the same interpretation, pretty much. They're trying, and they're not doing a bad job of replicating, but why? (laughs) You know, that's what... um, that way, I have notes for all these songs. Yeah. Mine says, the kids are all right. Why? Why? <laughs> it's the uh, theme song from that movie with uh, Julianne Moore and Mike Ruffalo. And it's Flo and Eddie singing backup on this, right? Um, not on, oh, this one, yes, yes, yeah. Which is funny because the, the three primary Who singer people singing harmony on the original one is... Quite a bit better, I think. <laughs> oh, or, yeah, or yeah. at least just as good. Like. And Flo and Eddie are great singers. <laughs> yeah. yeah they, they really are. So uh, if, they, if they couldn't polish this turn, then, <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, well, you know, he gets the drum solo. Maybe that was it. He needed yeah. a spot to, or someone twisted his arm. It's the only song he knew well enough to put a drum solo on. Uh, so while, while Keith is a fantastic rock and roll drummer, and in a lot of ways a, 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 the prototype for a particular type of rock and roll drummer. Um, he was a shit timekeeper um, famously. And when later in the who, when they started using uh, 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 sequenced synth lines and things like that, where he had to like maintain tempo and play like he really, really struggled to play even the most rudimentary backbeat thing cons- consistently, you know, uh, probably due to the fact that he was really <laughs> fucked up on drugs and booze most of the time. I don't think that helps your internal clock or anything like that. Um, but uh, I, I just think it, it's it's interesting with Keith that he, you know, he could do these great jazz drum battle kind of drum solos and do this really frantic nonstop drum solo thing, which when he was bouncing back and forth, um, with with Entwistle and the rest of the band um, functioning more as as a, a counterpoint than any sort of like ryth- rhythmic framework, like he's great. He's amazing. There's nobody like him at the time. Lots of people still fall on their faces trying to do what he's famous for doing on the drums. But when it comes to playing it, it, this particular type of really simple, like the backbeat is king, rock and roll stuff, you know, foundational rock and roll stuff. I, like really think he always struggled. I don't think it was ever in his wheelhouse. And so it's, it's, I'm, I mean, he doesn't play, he hardly plays any drums on this whole album, but and that's it's, why it's Kenny, interesting. Kenny that, is really the heart of yeah. the who. <laughs> I mean, when I think of the who, I think of Kenny. Yeah. <laughs> it just, I think it's really fascinating that he picked an entire genre of music that he was especially, uh, uh, not suited to playing drums for to make his right. Well, and if he wants to be the front man, you know, maybe this is who knows, maybe this is just the stuff that he really, really digs, you I, know. And I get that he's a fan of the who, yeah. What? Well, <laughs> this song is a mystery. I, I, I kind of suspect that maybe you know, they're in the studio, they don't know what to do at a particular time. Let's jam on this town song, and then someone yeah. convinces yeah. them to, well, let's finish this one. Yeah, it's um, halfway there. You and, can and do this, it. And you know the words. Be, and then at least <laughs> when someone looks in the record store and they pick it up, there'll be a song they recognize on the... Uh, it's trying to, on the, trying uh, to throw his boss some money. Yeah, right. It's like, 
Yeah, that could be too. It backfired though. <laughs> did it sell? It cost Pete a few bucks. Yeah. No, this 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 record did not sell. It was it was certainly. I don't think it made its money back. It, it, no. I think it has by now. Though. Yeah, I was gonna say it probably sold an insane amount by today's standards. <laughs> certainly more than any of my albums did, but. Uh. Right, but not to not to justify the two hundred grams. I think that oh, was yeah. just the studio cost. Or yeah, something, no. Right? Yeah. Well, I so, wonder how much of that was you know right, refreshments. Right, right, shall right we refreshments. Say. Yeah. <laughs> but what did you say? Snacks. Snacks. Yeah. What was the bill from the <laughs> catering? <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right, Matt. I I think yeah. it was. We're, they we still need two more songs. We gotta do it. So, so Casey, if you if you had to put this, we can clear like, this one pretty easy. Yeah, <laughs> in a hierarchy of of who covers, where would this fall? I might be biased, but I think this is the best track on the album, just because it's a Pete song. Yeah, <laughs> yes, <great. laughs> that's true. And, and, and so, yeah, I'm biased. But uh, if it weren't for Keith playing that middle section. Uh, solo, it would be the weakest cover of the song I've heard. But uh, it thanks to Keith playing the just the bridge, it saves it. It's it does it introduces excitement. Yeah, this this record has a, a lot of things, but excitement isn't one of its main characteristics. Confusion. Once again, uh, the backing vocals bury Keith, and I'm sure that was intentional. Yes. That even that first note that I don't mind. It's yeah. like, where's it going, Keith? And just pick it out and stick with it. Yeah, yeah they didn't have auto tune back then. Yeah, well, actually, I'm thankful for that. Actually. Oh yeah, I can't imagine what this would sound like. This would be all. That would be total. So since this is a piece of vinyl, we'll pretend we're flipping it over and we put on track one on side two, and it's a. It's an original John Lennon composition called Move Over Miss L. is another newly composed original number that sounds like a, a cheesy old 50s song and written by John Lennon recorded for the album he was doing at that time but not released it's one of the only John Lennon original b-sides because usually he lets Yoko take the b-sides so it's um feminist icon she should uh, John Lennon <laughs> move over Miss <laughs> L <laughs> Yes. Well, you know, you gotta sell the record somehow. I'm, I'm not ashamed to say that Yoko Ono is, uh, I think, way fucking cooler than John Lennon. <laughs> well, in the uh, in the pre the pre internet days, did a uh, did do you think this was you know a, a marketable tool that they used? Say, hey, John Lennon, you know, wrote one of the songs on this. Yeah, probably. Yeah, no, there are definitely Beatles completists out here who bought this just to make sure they heard every. Every song that John ever wrote, so and you it's, got uh, Ringo there too. Yeah, 
I mean, come on, people were buying shit because Ringo was on it. Of course well, they yeah, did. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Ringo was able to put out a country album. <laughs> well, I just remember, you know, I was, uh, like, uh, I remember, uh, you know, when the, the Pink Floyd broke up for the first time, that um, uh, uh, David Gilmore came out with this album, uh, I can't remember the name right, now. The hitchhiking one, or no, 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 no. That that was the other guy. Um, uh, I, I still can't tell him. What, what was it? It was. Um, but I mean, about face. I think it was uh, called. Yeah, an album I really liked. But I, I remember going in the record stores, and the big, the big advertisement was including the song written by Pete Townsend. Hmm. So so it was like, hey, there's you know a Pete Townsend song on this this. Uh, this album back right. when they were gods among men right right yes. <laughs> you know so so yeah, I, i'm yeah. just you know i don't I, I couldn't find any evidence of this one way or the other but i'm just wondering how you know how much of this was how much of this was just you know haphazard luckiness or how yeah. much of it was sort of conscious like we better put this song on there i don't think anyone making the album was doing anything consciously i think maybe putting the album together later they're like oh we better put this one on there at least it's you know We'll get some Lennon completists out there to. But but around this time, this is the kind of stuff that Lennon was doing, wasn't it? Yeah, so no, that's yeah. It came out off that same album. It was actually the B side of "Stand by Me" from the rock and roll sessions. So, you know, Phil Spector, more fifties doo wop covers. So, it was the thing to do at the time. Were the did the Teen Idols name themselves after this? Uh, the teen American Idol. We could swift, swiftly move on to the next track, which is, um, I'm not sure if it's an authentic 50s thing or a um, 50s pastiche, but that's sort of the theme of the album, Teenage Idol. This is my favorite song on the album. This is awesome. I mean, if, if that uh, guitar solo gives you miserly vibes, apparently it's because that's Dick Dale. Yeah, but it, it, how Why would you get Dick Dale for this song? That, that is a, a strange question. It's like the, the king of the guitar, and they, they somehow neuter him. Yeah, he just happened to wake up in the studio when they were recording this one. There was no forethought put into it. Dick's awake. Hit record. It's Dick Dale. I did think it was a timid sound alike when I first heard this. But yeah. if you look, he's in there. He's just yeah, yeah, kind of yeah. buried. Like everything like is buried because like there's a million different things. Going yeah, that's on, one of. The, I look at the guitar monsters you have on this, and like, not people who are gonna like do some wanky, you know, guitar stuff. Like tasteful, badass guitar players who can really draw you into a song, and they're like. Every the, the one thing that every song in this album has in common is that the most interesting thing and the most dynamic thing in any particular song is fucking buried. It's like the most buried thing is like the the one thing that could carry the entire song and it's a But we got the strings just cranked way the hell up. They they cost a lot and they didn't they didn't pay Dick very much. They had him under contract, so they actually no, made him. No, they just paid Dick come and in. Brandy Alexanders and 
Yeah, should we talk about the the Brandy Alexanders? That we're all stay d- tuned for the, uh, the detours and outliers yeah. recipe for Brandy Alexanders. <laughs> and how to get yourself so drunk you uh, get kicked out of a Smothers Brothers concert. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I, yeah. I like to just have a funnel and get the the strawberry ice cream right into the brandy bottle. Ugh. Yeah, no, apparently they're they're to take a couple of swigs, <laughs> very and, tasty, and top it off with so ice you don't cream. realize just how drunk you're getting. And uh, yeah. What is it like? Brandy, like coffee liqueur. It's yes, yeah, like cream, like, like whipping cream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it tastes like a milkshake or, or ice cream if you're yeah. so inclined, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like a, um, yeah. I don't. How could you get drunk on those? I mean, I guess I, I think you would get fat far faster than you got or, drunk or maybe on that, something like that. Or maybe if that was your food. Yeah, I don't think anyone was eating anything at this point. <laughs> was, like a, their sole source of sustenance was whipped well, cream. Um, Keith was getting a little bit bloated. Yeah. Um, or chubby. I think it was more bloating than... That seems accurate, yes. Yeah, medically yeah. accurate. Yeah. Like, if you, if you had a... Well, you know, I guess it is just... It is, it's got to be the drug haze, but that doesn't explain the terrible mixing, though. I mean, it really yeah, doesn't. Yeah, because I don't think anyone was still awake when the mixing happened. I think everyone was moved on to the next party by the time any of the actual work of the album... And we, Got done. we were saying that producers and, and people involved with this were, were just scared the hell off multiple times, right? Yeah. Well, that might be part of the problem is the people who finally did mix this album were so fucking pissed at Keith at this point. They were trying to bury him. They yeah. hated him. They didn't want to hear his voice anymore, <laughs> and they were just trying to obscure it as much as it they does, can. This seems like a ship without a captain kind of thing as far as production-wise. Um, yeah. yeah, I think there's an apocryphal story. I can't remember um, what song it was in particular, but I guess Keith was, was having difficulty with a certain song that he was singing, and there was an array of lights above him, yeah. and he kept, like, after every take, he'd smash one of the lights that was above him. And um, That's uh, practical. Yeah, 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 which, uh, you know, apparently was, uh, yeah, you know. Well, that will increase the cost of your money. Of frustrating your and dangerous, right? Yeah. But, you know, rock and roll's changed a lot. I was at a, a show, now that we can go see shows again, um, recently, and um, it was a punk rock show, and uh, the singer was spraying beer. Yeah. And um, the sound guy got very upset because, <laughs> you know, uh, there was beer spilt on the stage, and it's like a... There's a spe- expensive uh, equipment up there. You would have never survived the 70s, buddy. No. <laughs> like, well... Or maybe even maybe even the naughties. True. No, that's like a... But... Speaking of naughty... Sounds like a sound guy who's about to get sprayed with beer. <laughs> Shall we move on to or the... Uh, bottles chucked at him. The anal sex song, uh, or... Backdoor Sally. <laughs> we heard the song Peg Leg Peggy by Ant Whistle. <laughs> Identical. There you go. interesting things about like there's so many different people in there like there's two people credited with piano on this there's like three people credited with guitar on a bunch of other songs and 
you could play all of this material really, really well with like a skilled quartet. There's probably a setting on your Casio that'll pull off this song pretty well. <laughs> this is the one that I. This is pretty Elton John meets Meatloaf. Yeah. This, yeah, this happens to be a Billy Lee Riley cover. Um, he didn't write the song, but he was a rockabilly. So it was guy. actually authentic for the period. Right, right, right. That uh, was around for a long time. Although this, you know, it's supposed to be a rockabilly song. It doesn't even really sound. No, it's more. Yeah, the piano and yeah, it's definitely the 70s version of the 50s, which is a slightly skewed version of the 50s. And there's all this like like reverb that's like glopped yeah. over everything. Um, yeah, no, it's definitely very Spectre produced where, you know, Echo wh- cures all. You know, one of the interesting things about early rock and roll and rockabilly and just the 50s in general is that... Um, due to technical limitations, they were just not able to record anything with tons and tons of tracks and overdubs and multiple... It it had to be done very live, usually in a room. You know, the same room. Yes, the same uh, small room. You know, um, in the most primitive setup with a ribbon mic where the band stood sort of in the quieter node of the microphone and the singer stood in you know a more sensitive part of the mic pattern and they kind of balance between the instrumentalists and the vocalist that way again in one room with one microphone in um, mono in mono yeah and no more than two minutes because the thing yep. had to fit on a 45 and and instead so we have 82 musicians the, on this version. The 70s interpretations of 50s stuff really stand out because of that because they're trying so hard to sound like the 50s doing things that never, ever, ever would have been done in the 50s, usually to the music's detriment, but... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, Bobby Keys plays a sax solo on this. You know, he's uh, probably more famous for touring with the Rolling Stones. And yeah. as, as I said earlier, he was probably just stopping by the studio to pick something up from somebody. And yeah. <laughs> right, I think it was around this time that, that um, Mick kicked him out of the band, out of the Stones. Really? It was probably had something to do with, not this album, but, yeah, you know. but hanging out with those right, people. Right, right, <laughs> yeah, He was just unreliable. I, yeah, I noticed that <laughs> we don't see Mick or Keith hanging out with this crowd in L.A. Yeah, no, no. They're in the south of France or something, but, yeah. Right, right, yeah. I'm trying to think, what were they doing in 70? 75. Five. When Keith tells you to stop. Yeah, they probably were in when, when Keith Richards <laughs> tells, you to, tells you to stop <laughs> hanging out with us. <laughs> You're a mad maniac. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Still, that, that it's I... It's not subtle. I don't know. I just, I want to like this stuff better than I do. Um, it, it, well, that's just it. Is If it were done with enthusiasm, it would have been great. But I feel like it's just lifeless and half-hearted because Keith wanted to have a record out, but he didn't want to go through the hassle of actually recording an album <laughs> so and uh or yeah it's yeah i just i i you know I'm, I'm coming around to the idea that like his vocals are not good on this this album but at the same time i would rather hear him more yeah no because uh, that's the only thing that makes us any different from just a half-assed 50s cover band in 1975 and, and he's <laughs> a he's a rock and roll Clown, you know, Keith can Keith could absorb this being a, 
just a goofy novelty. Oh, thing. and it, it would probably yeah. be a hit. Like if he had something that was just unhinged, yeah, played wasty face Keith and and a bunch of famous people as his backing band, and it was presented that way. I mean, we would be talking about it in a whole different. It would be the ultimate light. party record. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like t- t- tonight's the night kind of vibes, yeah. you know. Like, but there, you know, there are moments that peek through here and there where it sounds like they're having a blast party and making rock and roll music. But even those moments are seem to be deliberately bare, obscured. Um. So. Well, <laughs> speaking of not having a party, shall we move on to the? Uh, penultimate track a cover of yet another band that's more of a contemporary than an influence of the who the beatles there are places i remember all my life though some have changed Some forever, not for better Some have gone on And some remain Yeah, so there's a... that I mean, mean best version of the song? I think so Uh, No In 1998 or so, George Martin, the Beatles producer before he retired Did one last album called In My Life In which he did a bunch of... Beatles covers with like Robin Williams and Jim Carrey singing for God knows what reason. And four in my life, he had Sean Connery reciting the lyrics. And frankly, the arrangement is very similar to this. Oh my God, this has become my ringtone on my phone. You can't find it anywhere. You have to like buy the CD on eBay for 200 bucks, but it is an amazingly bad album. It would be a good one for the show. So George Martin is is, is influenced by this. Apparently, because yes, that's exactly what Take this reminds everything me everything I said. <laughs> would, this, would this album have been better with George Martin producing it? Um, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. It would be better if someone produced it. He, he yes, was, he was. He was, you know, famous for for whipping the lads into shape, right? With yeah. the Beatles, there so. might have been a murder suicide or yeah, something. Well, he was also famous for, you know, you know cranking out crap from a uh, America, but that's you know, neither here nor there. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. He did America. Yeah, he did a lot of America. That's that's like his big post Beatles thing. His horse with no name. They sound good. I mean, yeah, I mean they are they are well produced. That's right. I'll give America that. <laughs> yeah, I, re- I like remember the first time registering that America was not some Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young <laughs> spinoff group. spinoff group, and it was like, wow, this is a whole nother. There are people whose whole career is you know sister golden hair, and I also had the question for this song in particular. Yes, why? Why? Yes, I mean. <laughs> If you like this song, well, at least unlike, you know, the kids are all right. He changed the arrangement. He made this as schmaltzy and dramatic as possible. And it's it's touching for the first 30 seconds or so mm-hmm. until the, the angel choir <laughs> bombards you with this, you know, awe that like knocks you off your chair. I, um, I like that you can hear his voice, at least. Yeah. Yes, you can. And I mean, this is where I think he shows his best vocals. He... 
He's sort of singing, sort of speaking, and he knows which notes he can't hit and which notes not to try. <laughs> it's like a, but yeah, but yeah, I was thinking, you know, this is the, like, where would you play this? Like weddings? A, yeah, but a wedding for who? I was thinking uh, like maybe Keith Richards, a re- retired um, musical theater folk or something. <laughs> you know, I, I don't. <laughs> People who like the Beatles but don't like rock and roll. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think. Uh, I mean, the, the the Keith part in this is is it's okay, but the rest of it, it's 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 more Pat Boone. Is that the fifties he yeah. he pines for? I hope not. That's a uh, yeah. That's uh. yeah. It's um. I think this was the B side, actually. Uh, B side yes. to "Don't Worry, Baby." So, um, <laughs> yeah, go get that forty-five, and you don't need the rest of the album. Uh, That's a winner <laughs> in my life. Wow. Yeah. yeah, it's it's an odd choice, but Tugs um, at the heartstrings when it's done right. Well, there's strings, all right. Lots and lots of strings. <laughs> it's a good song. Right? Yeah, That's no. not, you know. That's not the problem. <laughs> yeah, but I, I wonder what. Uh, just sort of thinking out loud, what um, if you had a choir, what couldn't you do more with it? Than- yeah, you can't always get what you want with a choir, right. but you can get more than this. <laughs> Maybe before we started recording, there was somebody, Matt. You were saying something about uh, Brian Wilson perhaps being involved in this. Yeah, yeah, or, or meant to be, and I just. I can't believe that he Brian Wilson would be involved uh, in any of this with the string arrangements and the choir arrangements that are here. Well, it is they very are, much chord. Yeah, chord. Yeah, there's but, no movement. There's no. But yeah. even but, but a Brian, yeah. even if Brian Wilson did that, it would be a much more interesting chord. Yes, <laughs> you know, like these are really. This is like the lady that plays piano at at the church. Uh, you Knows know, just enough wrote, to make things. Yeah, wrote all of these, both the the the, the choral arrangements and the the strings because they're the just bass gets really the safe. The tenor gets the third. <laughs> there's, yeah, the, nothing's the altos in, get the fifth. Nothing's and inverted. Get there's, the octave. There's all right, we're never done. a big hole for a melody to exist. It's just yeah. like backing track to. Yeah, again, this is a karaoke album. Well, I agree with what Casey was saying too. It seems like a lot of that stuff seemed to be designed to disguise Keith's voice, and I don't understand. I don't understand the logic of that. You know, they if he, hated his guts, man. They, they just, they just don't, don't I mean, this is the Keith Moon album for people who hate Keith Moon. Why? I mean, if you've ever read anything about the dude, like his legend is entirely more fascinating than you know. If you had to be around him, yeah, he's he was a guy you want to observe from a, a safe distance. Yeah, like there was there was considerable collateral damage around Mooney. In his time, and so some of the some of the stories of indulgence and 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 crazy stuff, like you know, and pranks particularly, are are a lot more funny when you're reading about them and you know for a fact that someone didn't die because <laughs> people know. could have or been Speaking really injured. Which, let's talk about Keith Moon's chauffeur. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was just a really sad, yeah, yeah sad moment. And what was that? Um, I don't remember what year that. I'm was. looking at it, but that's before this was before this album. Right? Yeah, but he still managed to put a chauffeur on the cover of this album. Apparently, he had to have something of a fight with his record label. He walked into the uh, the record head's office with a um, small axe and said, "Either you let me do this cover, or I'm going to chop your desk up." So yeah, I think it was a really nice desk. Yeah, well, I I would imagine so. So he got his. Uh, I don't know what's so yeah blasphemous about this cover. He looks no very I, droll, very. You know what? I think it was the expense. I think it was just it was a hiring a. Yeah, you know, um, it was a limousine a, and a. It was really a, a you know a, a gatefold uh, yeah. album. You know that probably doubles the cost of that. And you know they had spent so much on it. It's kind of like what's yeah. What's put it in a plain brown wrapper right, and dump you know? it in the lake. And it's something like this executive is just like wanted to put his foot down, and it's like yeah. no, he's well, not going to let you do that. Wasn't the um, there was also the legend that he'd driven his Rolls Royce into a swimming pool. So I, I, I think I, I think it was a I think it was a. a a Lincoln. It was like, okay. Yeah, but yeah, but, but yeah whatever. Something, but, but, yes. <laughs> yeah. It was 1970. Yeah, that, that, that was at, that was at a hotel, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, it was 1970 that that Keith. Um, so you had a his. It was his good friend of his um, who was his chauffeur, and uh, Keith was attacked by a group of of skinheads, and uh, was just trying to get out of there and hopped in the driver's seat and took off, and his. Buddy, who was the chauffeur, had hopped out to kind of deal with the mob and uh, was run over um, accidentally. And from a couple of biographies and other accounts that I've read, that was kind of the beginning of Keith really trying to booze himself to death. He was not a happy guy after yeah. that. That was really, truly an accident and like his good buddy. And Well, that is traumatic. And, that counts uh, as trauma, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, one of the tragic things about this era of, you know, big record label stuff is that everyone was encouraging these people to be as big of a like they were their job was to be this big of an asshole and drug fiend like that was that's part of the legend that was for sale. This is almost this Peter Pan kind of you can just party forever shit. And like these guys were starting to. I mean, by the mid-70s, people were dropping like flies. Yeah, I mean, he may have sang Teenage Idol, but he was, what, 30-something at this point? Yeah, yeah. Hey, Casey, yeah. do you know, when did when did, uh, when did did Pete stop drinking? Do you know? Like, uh, which time? Which <laughs> time, yeah, yeah. He no, quit just, drinking um, 19, right at the end of 1974, after the Quadrophenia tour. So right before this. Yeah. And then uh, they went and did, right after this record was released, uh, they went into the studio to record Who My Numbers. and uh, Which is almost as good as this album. Then Pete started drinking again after Keith died. Started doing coke and heroin. But yeah, yeah. That, uh, yeah, it was just, uh, you know, I was just sort of thinking that, that you know, you got to, sooner or later, right, you got you to gotta rein it in. Somehow you got to, yeah, you can't keep doing that forever. No, no. And even if it's not, you know, even if it's not a... Otherwise, you'll die before you get old. Right. <laughs> well, it sounds like, you know, that, that, that uh, uh, I mean, that it has to have an effect on the band, right? Yeah. You know, and, and um, 
you know, I would think that 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 even you know that incident that Keith had with his chauffeur, I imagine that affected the other guys too because it affected him. Absolutely. You know, well, I mean, yeah. like from reading the the you know the recent Entwistle biography, when when Moon died, Entwistle like really leaned into it more than ever, having not ever really slowed down because that was his you know his good buddy that he just lost to basically the same shit that he was doing every day and. You know, I, it's sad to look back at these, you know, these kind of rock and roll idol type people that were held up by this big industry and just be like, unless these people were pretty fucking unhappy. Yeah. They, <laughs> like they, they needed were, help and they certainly were not. It looks like so much it. fun. It looks like so much fun. Yeah. And they were paid to look like, you know, like more than musicians. They were these living, breathing cartoon characters. That imply, yeah, they exactly, you know, like we, we got another wave of it in the eighties, but yeah, no, and, that was and, a, and again in the nineties, except it was cool to die of drugs. Uh, yeah, no, that was part of the gamble. <laughs> but yeah, this is, this is the heavy days of here, drink this, take this, sign this, don't read it. Yeah. Well, shall we move on to the, uh, the final track and the, the only song Keith has a co-writing credit on it. Written by Ringo, Harry Nilsson, and Keith. It's together. Life isn't easy when two are divided and one has decided to bring down the curtain. But one thing's for certain, there's nothing to keep them together. How does it happen that two can be tender and one be the lender of love? Well, you're a big fan of reggae, Logan. Who do you think's better at singing reggae, Keith Moon or Willie Nelson? I, I just want to hear Ringo and uh, Ringo and Keith babble in in, in oh, charming yeah. British accents. Like it devolves into like a, a like half of a Monty Python sketch where you can't quite hear it, so you can't make out the jokes. It's just the accents. If the, <laughs> if the album had become this by about a halfway and just kept going, like, yeah, awesome. No, awesome, side one awesome, should have awesome. just been a drum solo and a twenty-minute version of Cobwebs <clears throat> and Strange, and side two should have just been a, a sketch where Ringo and Keith wander around L.A. and talk to random strangers. Yeah, yeah, you know, my dog doesn't eat meat. Oh! <laughs> if you don't eat your meat, how can you get any pudding? <laughs> that, uh, yeah, dead dog joke in there. This is this is a uh, you know I don't know I mean it, it would be maybe intolerable, but it might have been also better if this was kind of the whole album. Uh, absolutely, like, this is. Why isn't Eric Idle involved? Yes, <laughs> indeed. Was he, he was doing something more debaucherous, like across town or something. I think. 75 he's making movies yeah he's in jerusalem making life of brian or something yeah the the uh um, both ringo and jim keltner are credited with playing drums and if you listen it does sound like they're both playing at the same time and it doesn't always work well yes and for a song (laughs) with this sort of faux caribbean vibe what you hear almost exclusively are the violins going Big string sections in Calypso and Lindo music. Yeah, very true. Really important. Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, that's what Bob Marley's known for. The violin for. did come from Africa. You know. And the steel drums, steel drums can just sound harsh. They sound especially 
harsh. Yes. On, really? On ah, they're okay. On you here. thought they were okay? Yeah. It's goofy. Maybe there's just a frequency that was hitting me the wrong way. That, uh, but uh, no, this sounds like a mess. Like <laughs> this sounds like the most fun on the. For as much fun as people say they're having making this record, this is the only track that's fun to listen to. Uh, I yeah. Think. This might, they might have done this the first day. <laughs> <laughs> this do, album's going to be great if all the songs are yes, like this yes, one. Yes, we got it going I now. Do, I do wonder what order things were created in because there are these occasional moments of, man, they really seem like they're having a good time. And then... Seconds later in the same song, it just feels like a slog. Like somebody's poking poking them with a stick to get them. Wake to, up, Keith. Wake up. To read. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, the whole the whole band too. Like it, it alternates with these moments of being pretty fun and inspired and just dragging along. And it, it it's kind of interesting how that's throughout the whole the whole album. Every song has both of those moments. Yeah. So how long did you say this album was? 29 minutes. Okay. So I have some the shortest in- information for you, right? So the, the original um, album, 1975, um, 10 tracks. Yes. Right? 10 tracks, sweet and short. Yeah. Like, and as we've been describing no, it so far, not something that we, um, that I, I'm speaking for all of you, but correct me if I'm wrong, that we want to listen to over and over again. No, right? no, and that no. We're, and, and we really want to hear more. Yes. So in uh, the mid 1990s, there was the bonus track addiction came out, and that then expanded it from 10 tracks to 18 tracks. Mm. And then Sweet. there's more. You oh. never should have played God. In 2006, so in the noughties, um, the deluxe edition came out, which was two CDs. Two CDs. Um, disc one had 25 tracks, and remember. disc two had 29 tracks. Really immerse yourself in this. Uh, now, now wow. some of those tracks were were more of uh, you know sort of yeah, fifteen seconds of a uh, you know yeah Keith and and um, Ringo Ringo right? like, yeah, but 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 there was a, a significant amount of other music that was recorded on all of this. Now I did not have the patience or the desire to <laughs> listen to them all, but I did listen to the the songs on the the, the bonus track edition that just expanded it to eighteen tracks. And for the life of me, I'm not saying that that those are the real gems. Yeah. And they picked the wrong songs, but I can't figure out why they picked the songs that they did. Huh. It may have been a matter of what can we get the royalties yeah, to? Yeah, right. I think Steve Cropper wrote a lot of them. They, yeah, he yeah. wasn't signed with whatever record label, so. Yeah, and then there was another Fanny song on there that they they yay you know yeah yeah <laughs> so, yay, yay. yeah. Uh. <laughs> And yeah. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go track that down. That's yeah, <laughs> you go right ahead and do that on your own. <laughs> did, the, did the deluxe one come with like a a, a, a kilo of pharmaceutical math <laughs> and yes. a, a case yeah. of champagne? I, I do not know what the packaging looked like. Yeah, but uh, I imagine there would have been something fun. Like yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> is the market well, could have been extra photos from the you know the, maybe the photo shoot for the album or something. CD like version yeah. of this. It's yeah. like I love this album so much. I just wish there was. Three times as much. So uh, apparently, there, there, there had to have been in order to do that. Yeah, there had to have been some kind of demand. Yeah, I mean, Casey, you're the biggest Who fan I know. Would you want that? Hell no. 
I also <laughs> I was thinking that if Ginger Baker made an album like this, I wouldn't want that. If John Bonham made a record like this, I wouldn't want that. Oh, Peter Chris, I just won't mention Peter Chris. <laughs> I think he did make a record like that. Um, yeah, just, we'll get to those four Kiss albums at some point. At some point. Because yeah. <laughs> that was a, uh, a choice. I, I, if we do the Kiss triple one, we or the the solo the, there's four. Yeah, there's four. Sorry, I was just thinking we got to do the Melvins one. We can we should barge barge through all in a in an episode. But the the Melvins parody of the Kiss solo albums are well, they don't have the Ankh Warrior, and he's really you know. I don't know. They're pretty weird. <laughs> They're pretty yeah. weird. That's, they really should do more solo albums of the replacement Kiss yes, characters. Eric Carr and whoever else came in, yeah. That um, I, I don't know. Like I said, this album, it didn't strike me as being as terrible as I remember it. But, you know, when I was a teenager, I had very little patience. Yeah, no, you and know, for, um, even at 29 minutes, you get bored of this real right, fast. Right. But, you know, now it's kind of like I'm, it interests me. It interests me to see what was going on and, and who the different characters that were playing on the, uh, yeah. um, you know, the different musicians. But it's just a bummer that no one shines. There's, yeah, there's almost no shining moment. This really yeah. is a bit of a missing link in the era of, of rock and roll. You know, it, it's like we said, all these people were hanging out together they were doing stuff together they were doing weird solo projects or or you know starting starting bands and trading you know band members and stuff this this was a scene this is kind of a a document of the scene that uh appears to be kind of a mess yeah just a little bit much like the sunset strip in the 80s when all the hair metal bands started going to the rainbow room and passing out troubadour and indeed I'm, there was passing out at the rainbow involved yes in this there's definitely rainbow sure. passing in yeah. yeah so yeah isn't that no, no there's an interesting story like this was the scene in 75 in 85 it's turned into you know motley crew yeah it's, it's the epitome of is yes, that the natural the progression of of the 70s was it was it inevitable that we ended up with with uh hair metal in los angeles well, hair metal, I mean, Los Angeles is sort of known for its deep commitment to being shallow. Yeah. So if <laughs> hair metal was going to happen anywhere. Well said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I guess that's true. Yeah, right, right. But I mean, those, those you know. Um, Having gone through punk, which was a reaction to exactly this sort of shit. This yeah. album probably is what caused punk. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Much more than like, you know, Rick Wakeman in a cape doing Arthur on ice. It was, nice. you know, guys spending, you know, half a million dollars on a. Uh, Rick Wakeman's more punk than most punks I know. So, you that know. That is true. Yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're right. I, there probably wasn't a lot of. of reaction well, among teenagers to rick wakeman right yeah, but no. uh, but uh you know maybe maybe um maybe you know excess like this was uh just yeah now i'm not terribly familiar with the other members of whose solo careers how close to the who was like you know roger daltrey's three solo albums or however many he had i only own one of them and i've listened to it once in my life so and I'll say it was it's a decent album, but it just didn't touch me at all. Wasn't as bad as this though. No, <laughs> no. no. And Ant Whistle stuff it gets into the cheese 
factor that this does yeah. uh, pretty heavily. And, and he also is involved with a lot of the Hollywood vampire crew as well. Um, that's what I, I, uh, um, uh, I, can, I can't remember what year it was, but it was a long time ago. Cause I know Jeff was still in the band and, and, uh, we went to go see John Atwistle play at, um, the, um, Grizzly Rose, not the Grizzly Rose, the other one. The the Buffalo, Buffalo Rose. Buffalo. No, no, it was the Grizzly Rose. The one off the one highway. One of the roses. Yeah, Grizzly yeah. Rose. Yep. Yeah, off the highway. And, and and uh two things I remember about that. I was really excited to go. The one thing was is that it was so fucking loud. It was un I had earplugs in and it was still like like my ears were ringing. I was just I was just amazed that you could make that much loudness in that place. Well, when you're and 50 that, and you're a stone man. Yeah, yeah, it's like <laughs> Do it it was, the rest of the band is the It was same. incredible. But but the other thing was is I knew nothing about John Atwell's solo career. My my whole take was is here's one of the greatest rock bassists ever. He can, do, do he can do two and a half hours things. of right. I was expecting to see, you know, just yeah, just crazed bass playing and it was just it was very straight ahead rock and roll. Um, a, a lot like this stuff on this album, but you know, just it was better. It was a lot better. Yeah. Um, the band was better. It was tougher, right? It was more. Um, it was um, you know, um, it was more Marshall stacks and, and less choirs, yeah. right? right? <laughs> but um, but uh, you know, so so in that sense, it was entertaining. But I was also just I was I was a bit mystified. Yeah. But but looking back, it's like well, I guess hey, if that's the stuff that you like, why wouldn't you? A bunch of my why favorite. You play it really it, it, like. Um, Chops heavy rock and roll heroes have gone on to later in their career, essentially being uh, a biker bands, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's just like, oh, well, that's cool. But, you know, I was, you know, Hoping really, really more. expecting more from somebody who, you know, defined an era of, of, you know, for their whatever instrument they're on or whatever type of music they did. But like you were saying earlier, I think these guys really just wanted to stay out on perpetual tour. I think they were not at ease at home. I think, I mean, certainly everyone in the who, but most people in just big corporate rock and roll in the, in the mid seventies had horrific substance abuse problems. And if they stayed home with nothing to do for more than a couple of weeks, they were going to be dead. And I, I, that was not, that was an open secret that a lot of, I mean, that's that's the Jerry Garcia story is that they made up all these other side bands for him to go out on tour because if he we just left him at home for a while he was going to be dead and uh, and Whistle pretty much said the same thing later in his career mm-hmm. um, and lots and lots of others you know all all of their peers pretty much said the same thing like they really you know just needed to be out on the road doing something they needed you know a, a tour manager to say you here's your hotel key and you need to be here by this time every single day and you know if you look back at a lot of them they started doing this shit when they were teenagers basically or in their early 20s and it's been, pretty much been their whole you know their whole adult lives they'd been on this treadmill of of tour you know, have some downtime and record, but you know, really they're kind of partying and doing drugs and drinking the whole time. And so staying on the move is really what kept them from dying. And, uh, um, that maybe helps explain why some of the material was, you know, not as inspired as the shit that they're, they're famous for, or, you know, it was just kind of stock, you know, uh, repertoire, you know, they're going out, 
playing just standard, you know, standard rock and roll repertoire stuff. And it's like not what you want from your hero, but oh, yeah, yeah. they need to do it so they can, you know, pay the IRS and, uh, you know, not die. Did, uh, <laughs> did Keith um, tour any of this? I, no, oh, I don't well, think so. Yeah, just, yeah. What a debacle that would be. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was like thinking, a, you know, Dennis Wilson, the drummer from the Beach Boys, was also a, you know, over-drugged, crazed lunatic at this time, not safe to be home. And he recorded, it was like 77, one solo album. And that is spectacular. That is an amazing album. Pacific Ocean Blue, if you've not heard it, it is. Huh. So, I mean, this formula could have worked, but I don't think Keith was the guy to do it. Oh, the band I was thinking of was The Best, which That's is a super a- group with Keith Emerson, Entwistle, Joe Walsh, Jeff Baxter, um, Simon Phillips. Uh, whoa, Jeff Beck was in there for a little bit. Yeah, it's like all these, and I want—I thought I was really sure that Ringo was involved with that somehow, but I think that might have just been because he was in the was, audience. Yeah. Oh, Zach, yeah, Zach Starkey. Yeah, Zach, Zach Starkey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Zach, that's his son. That's his son. Yeah. Yes. Okay, that's but that's but again, look at that that lineup. It's insane, and it's like oh wedding band quality uh, uh, Chuck Berry covers like yeah you know some people like to do a lot with a little but you know there's there's another there's another way to do that (laughs) so I guess the real question is did Keith need to do another one or did he say all he had to say I mean yeah I would have listened to another he started working on one. He got like, that's where some of those bonus tracks come from. Oh, like, probably. Yeah, yeah, I didn't think of he that. He got three or four songs into that before the record company was like, wait, you're just wasting our money. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, you know, reading some, you know, some about him, it is just really, it's really, I just couldn't, you know, I just can't imagine uh, the kind of day-to-day pain he must have been in. Um, and, you know, I'm not just from, I'm not just emotional pain, you know, I just mean from yeah, chemical abuse, right? Take, yeah. you know, so you're probably just constantly trying to just maintain yourself at, at a certain level of, of, you know, of functioning. And, and, uh, there was, there's some story from his, his girlfriend, his you know, girlfriend that, um, he had when he died. I can't remember her name offhand, but, but anyway, I guess she was begging, begging like the neighbor yeah. who was, Larry Hagman, I think, <laughs> to to uh, to get you know to get his because uh, uh, I guess he had a you know drinking problem or something, and they they uh, you know to get his you know therapist or his doctor to come look at Keith, and I guess he did like a you know an evaluation of him, and it, like he just he stopped after Keith described how his breakfast routine was, and he left and said there's no hope for him, yeah. you know, and it's just like like oh my God, that's like a. a um, I guess the guy was being honest, I suppose, but still it's, it's a, uh, you know, depressing. <laughs> yeah. That's depressing. Yeah. You know, if you got to get up and, and have, um, you know, drink some brandy and take some amphetamines just to, just to sort of get to the Cheerios. Right. right yeah. Just exactly. Just to get to the Cheerios. And let me, you know, if you could imagine, I mean, I think that was a little after this was made, but if that's, if that's actually going on, you know, he's probably trying to have a good time and all of that. And I'm sure everyone was having a good time sort of, but, but you're also like, 
barely functioning. And you're talking about a guy that, that, you know, would function like with the who, you know, clearly at a very high level for a long, you know, for a long, you know, for an extended period of time. So I will point out that recording in the studio sucks. It is really a completely different. It's repetitive. Yeah. Boring. It's a completely different discipline than performing on stage. It, they're opposites almost. And I can't see any of the stuff that I, I like. I, I think Keith hated recording always. If it was, you know, not just a, a setup and play it like we play it, you know, one or two times maybe. Like I think anything beyond that, like he was just probably not into um, building layer by layer, like you know, dark side of the moon. Keith, could you lay back a little bit on this next one? And it's yes. like, yeah, fuck you, know, <laughs> brandy bottle through the control room window, you know, like it's. I just, I don't think he was ever into the meticulous nature of recording, and so, I mean, he doesn't really have to play any drums or anything on this one. He could and kind I of just mumble, mumble yeah, off of a sheet, sheet of paper. Um, yeah, drums would have required too much uh, effort or focus. He's just like, yeah, just wake me up, I'll get the vocals. I, I think if the insanity in this had not been quite so top-notch they might have been able to retain a producer or somebody who could have steered the ship a little bit and it would have been well if keith done a solo album in like 1968 as opposed to 1975 would that have been a little more interesting or coherent or he wasn't even 20 in 68 exactly but he I think was, it would have been cobwebs and strange. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe maybe not better, but a different kind of uh, <laughs> weird. Yeah, we're we're way past uh, uh, um, uh, novel uh, uh, psychedelia in '75, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, that that's uh, yeah. That psychedelia is, is gone. Right? Yeah. 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 Like, um, well, you know, on the wooden ships. Yeah. You, you mean. Well, you still you still have some holdouts, but they're even they're even changing quite drastically. Yeah, right yeah, they're trying to trying to keep up. Well, the drugs weren't as fun. It was just yeah, far yeah. more heroin and coke and far less you know LSD and mushrooms. So, yeah, I, I think I mean as the Beach Boys have come up both as an influence and Brian Wilson's involvement here, the the Beach Boys don't get enough credit as a psychedelic band and being really formative in that yeah. genre and. Even the name didn't help. No, it didn't. <laughs> and well, and they, the whole image, you know, well, none of them were surfers or anything like that. They just, that was, it's you know, surf music was big. And so you guys are a surf band and it's really, it's this kind of twisted up, but the psychedelic you know, vocal group music. It's really pretty bizarre. If you, if you listen in, I, I get why, uh, you know, uh, the Beatles, uh, Keith Moon, the rest of the who, really like that shit it's i mean it's still really weird today even though we don't you know, tend to think of uh, kokomo or something but <laughs> it's like no it's not that when 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 brian wilson was firing on all cylinders it was some really twisted up weird shit oh and when and he was great. firing on only half cylinders it was even more interesting yeah, yeah, so yeah. maybe not as good but. so he probably wasn't on this because this was when he was crazy well this right? is yeah definitely deep in the brian wilson hasn't left his bed in two years period yeah it's like rock and roll's fun yeah hey well i guess on that note um is there anything you want to plug casey we got cadillacs is is 
gearing up, limbering up towards a... Hopefully be back on stage come October. Nice. So we'll definitely have plugs for when that's a, a thing that is happening, but we're glad it's happening. So, yes. With a new drummer, right? Yeah, the phoenix is rising out of the COVID ash. Yeah, yeah, COVID ash. Now there's so, a- so when your drummer wants to do a solo album, <laughs> we're we're all in. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll do the backing vocals. We'll be the flow and Eddie. I'll should, pass this information on to him. We should do another uh, Denver Art Rock Collective uh, show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, emerge from the bunker. Uh, emerge from, emerge the, from the, bunker. The, the the bomb shelter. Get some art rock rolling again. There Indeed. You go. Is there anything else we want or need to plug? I don't even know when this is coming out, but uh, no, Gord versus Goom at Bandcamp. No, there you go. Buy our new album, Paperclip City. It's good. And I guess on that note, um, tune in next time. We'll try and figure out who this is. He sits behind his microphone. Speaks in such a manly tone